Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Uh-oh. Okay. I don't know. Let's try it again. Good morning. Today's the day. It's the middle of March. I don't know. When you, what'd you say? And lost. Oh, man, I wasn't going to bring that up. I was going to try to not rub that in. I have so much power up here and so much salt that I have sword and the wound is gaping. But I was going to keep my mouth shut about that. Oh, man. It was snowing this morning when I woke up. Did you guys, was it snowing when you woke up? It's crazy. Ridiculous. All right. It's a month of madness, right? Today we start Romans 8. Y'all excited about that? How many of you are excited about Romans 9? Yeah. Romans 9 to 11. We'll be there in about six months when we get done with Romans 8. Um, man, I needed Romans 8 this morning when I woke up. I needed it. I laid in bed needing it for a lot longer than I should have. Jesus said, I just woke up needing grace. So let's pray and get into it. Father, there are some of us here this morning who are in bondage to guilt and fear, who are living as slaves to sin, who are living under the condemnation of the law. We have so many things we're afraid of. We're afraid of the future. We're afraid about our housing situation and about the housing market. We're afraid and concerned about bank failures and hyperinflation. We're concerned about the judgment that our nation justly deserves for its rebellion against you. And we're afraid that we'll get swept up in it. We live with fear and doubt and anxiety about money, about the approval of those around us, about our friends, the approval of our families, the approval of our husbands and wives and kids. We're constantly tempted to put our fists up to you, to the world, to those we love, to those who love us best. I pray this morning, Father, that you would forgive us, that you would cleanse us, that you would help us this morning to trust you with our lives, with our futures, with our finances, with our children. You're our good and heavenly Father, and we love you. Be with us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, today is a day of good news. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Ready? There is therefore now no condemnation. No, zero. How much? None. How many are righteous? None. No, not one. Zero. None. For those who are in Christ Jesus, how much condemnation is there? None. Nada. None. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Unrighteous, unclean, but in Christ washed clean. No condemnation. Zero. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, just our sinful nature, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay, we'll start there. How did we get here? 
Where have we been that we get such great news? We've been talking about the gospel, and it began how? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. For, do you remember what comes next? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. That's where we started. The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. And what are we? Unrighteous. And we spent three chapters boxing us all into corners saying, there is nobody righteous. There's rebels, there's hypocrites, and there's judges who are also hypocrites, the worst kind. But there's nobody righteous. There's nobody righteous. There's nobody who's better off than other people, not really. We're all sinners. We all fall short. We all mess up. We can't attain to the standard of God's law. In fact, God's law can only condemn us more and add to our sin. Not because the law is bad, right? God's law is good. What's the problem? We are. We're the problem. We're the ones who are bad. Left to ourselves, we have to find a way to deal with God's law, which is written on each one of our hearts. We have to find a way to deal with our consciences. And so what do we do? Well, we sear our consciences. We try to placate our consciences by minimizing God's law and our own sin. We try to deal with our consciences by just saying, well, by comparison to other people, I'm not as bad as everybody else. But we have to deal with our consciences. We all know that God is God. We all know what God's Word says. It's written on our hearts. He made us. We're made to worship Him alone. We should honor our parents. We shouldn't murder. We shouldn't commit adultery. We shouldn't steal or lie or desire what's not our own. And all of those things go deep down to our hearts. We all know that. We, fall, we all know that we've fallen short. We all know that we failed. We have guilty consciences. So what do we do? Well, we see our consciences and rebel. We teach ourselves to love being lawbreakers. We just become rebels. Where there's more law, good. More things to break. I just want to break things because I don't know what else to do with myself. Or we try really hard to become, instead of lawbreakers, law keepers. But to do that and to feel like we're doing it, we have to sell God's perfect law short and puff ourselves up so that God's standard comes down to our standard and just happens to perfectly match up with everything that we do in our lives. Something that's manageable for us. Definitely not a matter of the heart, right? But something that can be met on a bare minimum, superficial, surface level. We have another name for that kind of lawkeeper. We call them hypocrites. Because no one can really be perfect, not without lowering God's standards. Or instead of then focusing on ourselves and keeping the law or lowering the law to us, we become so lawbreakers, lawkeepers, law enforcers, the kind of person who is going to just run around and judge everybody else for breaking the law. 
And the idea is, it's not that I can keep the law, but I can sure do a better job than you. I'm better than you. Let me tally up all the ways that you have failed so that I can posture myself as being more righteous than you. I've given up on trying to be perfect, but I can be, you know, better than everybody else. I keep a tally, I keep a record. I make judgments about the way people fail. So this is us left to ourselves. This is what the Bible calls living according to the flesh or living according to the law or under the law. So this is just what we default to. This is our standard. This is the world as it is. It's just who we are apart from grace. So which one are you? In your home, which one are you? As a husband, as a wife, as a son, as a daughter, as a mother, as a father, which one are you? Where do you fit best? Take a half a step back and look at your kids. You can probably go through your kids if you have kids and say, okay, well, this one's the law keeper. He's quiet. He's kind of just the quiet hypocrite. He's just going to try to keep the rules. This one's the law enforcer, the one that's going to go around policing everybody else while not looking to himself. This is the one that just doesn't care. He's kind of, is there a rule? What, give me the list of rules that I can break. What's the thing that dad said not to do? Yeah, let's go do that. And each one of our hearts are inclined one of those three ways. And it's all of them all together all at once, right? Because you can't really sustain being a rebel. At the bottom, you, gotta, you, know, you end up tanking. Right? And you, you need to think of yourself in one way or another as a good person. You go to the jail, you go to the, you know, people who have done the worst things in the world. Nobody there believes they're actually a bad person. Very few do. They've got their reasons. Right? And the ways that they, th- they say that their rationalization of how they're better than other people. And at the end of the day, they're just a victim right? If nothing else, you can default to that. Well, I've been hurt. I've been harmed. And yeah, you know, that manifested itself in harming other people, but that was beyond my control. And that's not who I want to be. And that's not who I really am. I had a moment of craziness, but that's not me. And that's not the real me, right? Each one of us in different ways, every hypocrite has his indulgences, the places he lets himself run free. Same for the judge, right? And if we can't sustain it, we'll sustain it for long enough, and then back into rebellion. And in the cycle of binging and purging, right? We binge until we get sick of our rebellion, then we clean things up a little bit, clean the outside of the cup. We get satisfied with ourselves, we start to look down on other people, and then something breaks the illusion, and then we're right back into our rebellion, And that's it. Left to ourselves, that's just who we are. That's all we have. That's all we got. Whole religious systems are based on this way of thinking. Whole religious systems. Because that's all we can do by ourselves to climb up to God. That's all we can do. The law is an illusion. 
We're all just spiritual. We're all divine. God's a cosmic force. There's no personal law-giving God. Do as you please. Just be sort of generally benevolent. The law is something you can keep. Here are the ways that we're going to lower God's standards. Maybe it's just feel love in your heart. The law is something that can only be kept by jumping through enough hoops, but you've jumped through them all, so now you're in and you're an insider. God sees you as fundamentally better than other people who haven't jumped through the same hoops you've jumped through, so now you're cool. Ultimately, God likes good people, and here's what you can actually do that will make you good enough for God to like you. And every religious system operates this way, one way or another, and it's all counterfeit. It's all putting a mask on just the way we are by nature. It's putting a cover. But it is the way the world works. Left to ourselves, it's the best that we can do. And it's what we will turn the good news of the gospel into if we're not careful. We'll twist it. We could go back through our whole American God series that we've been going through and just each one of them identify, okay, what category, rebel, hypocrite, judge, does this fit into? Materialism, guess where that's going to fit? Rebellion. You guys are just forever the rebels over here, sorry. Rebellion, law-breaking. How about Marxism, though? I mean, these things are sort of, eh? Where would you put it? Where do you put Marxism? So Ben says judge. Alex says hypocrites. Anybody want to say rebels? Well, what we want to do is we want to justify all of our rebellion over here, and we're going to set up a whole bunch of laws and standards that are our own, and you're either in or you're out. And buddy, if you are out, the hammer is coming down on you. It's, it's, a, it's a total system, isn't it? It's a total system of justifying all of the rebellion that we want, all of the manufactured righteousness that we want, and all of the ability to stand in the seat of God and judge God and the world and everybody else. So the categories, they all blend, but this is the way that we are. Okay. All right. Got way off my notes here. Okay. Works the same way in our homes, doesn't it? It does. It works the same way in our homes. So think of this as a mom. Think of this as a husband. Think of this as a wife. Think of this as a father. You deserve, you work so hard to keep your standards and you deserve your indulgences. You sacrifice your body and your soul for the pig-headed husband you married and for those ungrateful kids. So, and what's the thanks you get for that? So you deserve that extra glass of wine or two or three extra glasses of wine at the end of the day. You go to your thankless job every day to provide for a wife who meets you at the door with a bad mood and a, with a headache and kids who are running around crazy. So you deserve to have a couple extra beers at the end of the night. 
And you kind of actually deserve to throw that shot of whiskey in there when nobody's looking to. It's hard to work for the heart of your wife. You've already been working hard all day. You have drives and urges and desires, and you have this thing called a phone. And it's just easier for everybody if... And in fact, you'd be doing her a favor too, taking some pressure off, because after all, she is tired and has a headache. I work really hard. I keep up. I do all the things, and I've got my places of rebellion. Live according to the law, living according to the flesh. That's what that is. Binge and purge. Endless loop of hypocrisy and rebellion. Where we think, and we teach our kids to think, that there are really only two untenable choices. Utter rebellion and unbearable hypocrisy. And that's it. That's it. Pick between the two. And if our kids grow up under unbearable hypocrisy, we shouldn't be surprised when they get out of the house and choose rebellion. If I can't be perfect, if I can't meet the standard that will gain me love and acceptance, I might as well quit trying. There are all kinds of places like this in our own homes, right? You have examples of this or maybe things that are holdovers from when you were a kid? I don't clean the windows of my car, the inside of them, because that was my job as a kid. And it's impossible to clean the inside of the car windows and not leave streaks and spots. So you'd be out there for hours as a kid. And then dad comes to check, and there's still streaks and spots. What are you supposed to do? Do it again? Keep doing it? What's going to happen? Dad's going to have to do it? It's hard. I'd rather just like have the dirty windows and not have tried. Because you can't be perfect. What's the point of trying? Places in your life where that's something that's just taken hold, that mentality's taken hold for you? I mean, sometimes I think the reason dad would have me clean the windows is so he could come out and be like, yep, it really is impossible. I don't feel as bad about the fact that I can't get them clean either. I mean, there are things that are like that. If nothing's ever good enough, why try? All you get something short of perfection. The need to forever try to attain some kind of unattainable standard or live under the unbearable hypocrisy of pretending that you've actually done it. Who wants that? Nobody wants that. So we think that there are these two untenable choices, rebellion or unbearable hypocrisy, and that they're opposite of each other. But the opposite of those things is the opposite of rebellion is not unbearable hypocrisy. It's freedom. It's freedom. So here's what God said. The law is good. When it meets up with your sin, it produces more death, more destruction, more chaos. The law is good. You're bad. I will make another way. I'll make another way. I will send my own son who alone is good. He will keep the righteous requirement of the law perfectly He'll do what you could never do. He'll die the death that you deserve. He'll bear the penalty of your sins. He'll set you free from the law of sin and death. And that's what God did. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's what we have been building on and preaching for the last however long it's been, eight months now. 
So, if you are in Christ Jesus, you belong to him. And in him, there is no condemnation. None. No condemnation. And that means freedom. And the reason it means freedom is because your love and acceptance is with God is not based on you. It's not based on anything you've done or could have done. You are bad. You are unrighteous. But there is one who is good. And if you're united with him, he takes your sin and he gives you his righteousness. And there's no condemnation for you. You're forgiven and loved and accepted and embraced. Which doesn't mean that your sins and failures and faults aren't real. Or that they don't matter. But it does mean that your relationship with God is not built on the foundation of what you can or can't do. It's built on what Jesus has done. And Jesus freed us from the binge-purge cycle of rebellion and hypocrisy. He gave us His Spirit who gives us power to put our sin to death so that we can walk according to God's law, not because we have to, but because we get to, we want to. And He gives us the power to do it. And to do it not for God's approval, but from God's approval, because we already have God's approval in Christ. He put himself in our place so he could put us in his place. He became a man. He went to the cross. He bore the wrath of God for our sins. He put himself in our place in every way so that we could live in his place by the power of the Holy Spirit. With the full love and approval and acceptance of God the Father, the same love that God the Father has had for God the Son from all eternity past is yours if you're in Christ. He took the wrath and the punishment. You get the forgiveness. You get the freedom. You get the power to live. To live a life of obedience to God. Not so you can become good enough for God to like you, but because Jesus is good. Remember, This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Before he ever began his ministry, that's yours. It's yours. If you belong to Jesus and are in him. And if you are, that love is yours. You are God's beloved. He is well pleased with you. You were outside. You were excluded. You were under the wrath of God. Justly. It's what you deserved. On the outside looking in, and God could never be pleased with you, no matter what you did. You could only pretend or quit. But if you believe in Jesus, and if you're in Christ, you're in, and you're in forever, and there is no condemnation for you. None. Zero. And we live in a world of condemnation. I mean... We was talking just a minute ago about the Marxist cycle, right? Y'all remember what it was like to go out where you had to wear masks or else? Or what it was, I mean, cancel culture, what is that? It is condemnation culture. You cross certain lines, you break certain laws of cultural conformity, and you're done, you're toast. A few years ago, around 10 years ago, I think, uh, I invited a famous Christian pastor and apologist to speak on the campus of IU on uh, our sexual identity, what it means to be designed as male and female. 
well-known uh, pastor and apologist, just got off a debate tour with Christopher Hitchens, a famous atheist, going around to university campuses. And, uh, and they published a book together, even, I think, of their debates. Um, and what happened? The mob got wind of what we were doing and decided to try to shut us down. We had over 30 cops called in. People were arrested. People were kicked out. People were standing on the outside, banging on the doors after they had been kicked out. At one point in his lectures, he says this, and this is, I think, a direct quote. The diversity crowd has two fundamental tenets. The first is, we believe in free speech. The second is, shut up. And I kid you not, do you know what happened right at that moment? Somebody in the crowd, without any irony and without any self-awareness, yelled, yeah, shut up. <laughs> not a joke. I sounded like Joe Biden for a second. Not a joke. The diversity crowd has two fundamental tenets. We believe in free speech and shut up. Yeah, shut up! <laughs> it's amazing. No irony, no self just condemnation. And all he said, the substance of his lectures was basically, God made us male and female. That makes men and women different. God made men for women and women for men, and we all screw it up and we all need Jesus. That's all he said. Did you think he was waging some kind of war on them? So they came in full force to shut him down, to shut us down. Our church building was broken into and vandalized. Somebody took a, a mattress and set it up on our church sign and lit it on fire. It's amazing. Condemnation, why? Because you can't face down your own lawlessness, your rebellion. You have to set up your own law and you become the self-righteous judge of all the earth and you stand in the place of God. And we, when we set ourselves up as judges in God's seat, we become much less gracious than the righteous and holy God who judges the earth, actually. Who makes the sun shine and the rain to fall on the righteous and the wicked every day. Who gives us all life and breath and all good things. And offers us all mercy and forgiveness. We become much less gracious and much more intense. And that explains the gulags. And the beautiful thing is that in Christ, there is no condemnation from God for our sins. So that frees us not just from being a slave to trying to earn God's love. It frees us from caring about the condemnation of men who can do nothing but cancel us or kill us. Whatever they do, they can't separate us from the love of God. Because with God, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But you have to be in Christ. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, let me ask you a question. If you look at the world... And if you were to turn on the news or go to a university campus, what is the one category of person in the world today who is safe to condemn? Who is worthy of condemnation in our world? There's no condemnation for anybody in the world today except for the Christian. 
or those who hold and believe in holding to some standard of Christian righteousness. That's it. That's the only person it's safe to condemn. You can be literally anything you want to be. You can be a man pretending to be a woman who is also a cat who's also three years old, and we should throw you a parade and celebrate you. We should put you in front of five-year-old kids and let you dance. And if a Christian shows up to say no, to stand against that kind of evil, well, he's, how dare he? He needs to be silenced. So why is that? Why is that? There's only condemnation from the world for those who are in Christ or who align with anything that he has to say. Is that a coincidence? It's not. It's not a coincidence. There are only two ways. The world is at war with God, and you can be friends of the world and enemies of God, or you can belong to God and be an enemy of the world. That's it. Two ways, one choice. And let me tell you, God is going to win the war. God's going to win. It doesn't matter how it looks. There's a reason all our best stories ultimately look like, oh no, evil is going to triumph over good. What can be done? And then at the end, it all comes together. Why are those the stories we love? Because that's the story that God is writing. That's the story he's telling. The center of that story is when Jesus went to the cross and it looked like it was over, and then he walked out of the tomb. And for the last 2,000 years, we've been accelerating toward the end of that story. Jesus won. Jesus is winning. Jesus will win. The nations of the earth can rage all they want. The king of heaven laughs. He laughs. So pick your side. In Jesus, there is no condemnation. None. Zero. There's only freedom from sin, from death, from hell. And there's forgiveness, and there is love, and there is power. Outside of Jesus, there is condemnation. There is judgment. There is an endless cycle of cope and denial. So pick. The condemnation we feel as believers doesn't just come from the world, though, does it? Of course, the world condemns us. Condemnation also comes from Satan, the devil. The Bible calls the accuser of the brothers. His goal is to render each of us spiritually impotent, powerless. How does he do that? He twists this verse, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He twists it to pull us right back into the binge purge cycle of, how, of living our lives. Twists it in two ways. There's no condemnation, yay. No condemnation means I get to do what I want. We get to be rebels, we get to do as we please. We're free to go right back to being slaves. Or he'll tell us that actually, of course, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
The trick is, well, what does it mean to be in Christ, really? Because to really be in Christ and to stay in Christ means to live by a standard that makes God happy with you, which incidentally you fail at all the time, which means you're not actually in Christ, so you're condemned, so you just need to feel the weight of condemnation constantly. Which you will feel every time you feel your fa failures, and if you buy the lie, you will live as a condemned person. Because if you live like a condemned person, you'll be destroyed. You'll never have any real spiritual power, and you'll live as though you're under the law. You'll have no hope, no confidence, and no power. And why would you? You deny the power of what Jesus did for you on the cross. He came, he lived a perfect life, he died for your sins, he rose from the, gra uh, from the grave, and you turn around and say, what? Well, it's just not enough for me. It's just not enough. I can't accept being under being without any condemnation. I can't accept that. I need to be punished. I need to feel punished. I want to feel punished. I need to be under some level of condemnation. I need to feel bad. Grace is too good to be true, and I can't accept it. I prefer to feel like garbage. I prefer to live under condemnation. I want my chains back. It's all I know. Let me go back to Egypt. Freedom is too much for me. I need to feel like a slave. Guilt and condemnation are my comfort food. And so, by the way, is my self-righteousness, the kind of self-righteousness that allows me to stand off to the side and judge everybody else who fails to live under the oppressive burden of guilt and condemnation that I feel. Those people are glib. They're lightweights. They don't know themselves the way that I know myself. I've looked into the abyss of my sin. I see it. I understand the holiness of God. They've never really been impressed by the weight of God's glory. They've never felt like they were standing in the consuming presence of the Holy One. If they feel freedom from the burden of sin, it's not because they have faith to embrace God's grace. It's because they don't have the faith to see their sin the way I do. It's lies. Lies. Self-righteous lies. Foolish, proud. The lies of proud little children who need a self-righteous reason to explain their spiritual impotence. That amounts to looking at Jesus and denying his work and saying it's not good enough. What you accomplished wasn't enough for me in my sin. No thanks, no grace for me. I'd rather be a slave. Now, if that's you, that's the twisting of a good thing. The good thing is a tender conscience. But it's twisted and used against you by your own sinful flesh and by your enemy, the devil, and it is spiritual war, and it's real. And the reality is this, your conscience must lead you to Jesus or your conscience is a liar. It can't remain fixated on your sins and failures. If it leads you to feeling overwhelmed with condemnation, it's not leading you to the Holy One. Because the reality of what it's like in the presence of the holiness of God for the believer is not finding yourself there in the presence of God and feeling overwhelming guilt and condemnation. It's finding yourself there and feeling you deserve that, and yet you're not consumed. Instead, you're free, forgiven. There's no condemnation where there should be. 
what miracle is this? My sins are washed away. I can stand here and not be consumed. What love is this? What grace is this? That's what it is to stand in the presence of the Holy One in Christ. It's not cheap grace, it's real grace. And here's what some of you with tender consciences need to understand. Cheap condemnation is just as bad as cheap grace. It's short of the mark. It's just the flip side of denying the cross of Christ. One side denies the sin and suffering, the other side denies the grace, and they are both the same picture. The same picture. And you have to take your eyes off yourself, and you have to fix them on Jesus where justice and mercy meet. Because it's not actually about you, and it's not about how you feel. It's about him, and it's about what he's done. Which is not to say that you and your sin don't matter, but it is to say that what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do matters more. Some of you are really good at digging up the sins of your past or digging up the sins of your loved ones and acting as their accuser or your self-accuser. You keep a record of wrongs, you rehearse them, you exaggerate them, you cultivate bitterness about them. They're a protective shield for you, a get-out-of-jail-free card, a hammer, a sword that you can use when you feel threatened. You get in a fight with your husband or your wife, you come or you bring out all of the things. Things you rehearse in the shower and in the car while you're doing, or while you're doing the dishes or whatever it is while you're at work, while you're on the assembly line. And out come all of the imaginary arguments that you've been having with your husband or your wife or your boss. Why do you do that? You've been hurt, you're self-protective. Ultimately, though, that's how you think of your relationship with God. You play with the tally books, you keep score. You keep a record of wrongs. And in your record book, you manage to never have any mistakes or missteps of your own. And the ones you have are really small. They don't really count. In your self-righteousness, as the self-appointed judge of everyone and everything, you feel absolutely free to presume on God's grace for yourself and to deny it to absolutely everybody else around you. You can't bear to turn that gaze on yourself, though, for fear of what you'd find. So you fixate on everybody around you until nobody can breathe. If you play with the tally books, you lose. As you judge others, so will you be judged. So here's the distinction we have to make. And the distinction is between conviction and condemnation. Conviction of sin is the gift of the Holy Spirit. His goal is repentance and obedience. And with repentance and obedience, gratitude and joy for the grace that covers sin and empowers new life. For the believer, condemnation is a demonic counterfeit of conviction. The goal is to beat you down and render you impotent. 
The goal is a worldly sorrow that takes the place of repentance. It places feeling over action, takes the focus off of Jesus, and puts it on yourself and your sin and your failure. When we look at Jesus, we see our sin for what it really is, which is actually much worse. And conviction of sin drives us to Jesus. Condemnation will stop us short of God and of grace. We'll see law, but we won't see Christ. And that's the difference, really, just in a good father. It's the difference of the little league coach who sees a kid make a mistake out on the ball field and jumps his case. How could you screw up? Did you see that mistake you made? Did you see the error that you made? How could you do that? How could you possibly do that? You failed. You let us down. And the coach that says, man, buddy, I know you screwed up. I know you know you screwed up. Let's work together on how we can fix this on how we can get better. God's a good father. And if you're in Christ, you're his son. You're his child. And he's here to help. Grace is here to help. The Holy Spirit is here to help. He brings conviction. And conviction can be painful. But the law and the condemnation of the law And the accuser of the brothers just wants to cripple you. He's not here to help. He's here to beat you down. Grace will discipline you, but grace doesn't come to punish. Jesus was already punished for you. Condemnation is about punishment. It says Jesus' punishment wasn't enough. You have to share in bearing the weight of the sin, and you actually can't do it. So game over. God's a good father. And when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, it's real and it's obvious and we know what it is and we know what to do about it and it leads to worship. Because we know that with the conviction of sin comes both the promise of forgiveness and the power to change. There's freedom and there's hope and there's joy there. When Satan condemns you, when you self-accuse, when you accuse others, it's just blanket condemnation. There's nothing to repent of. There's nothing to be made right. You're just a loser and a failure. You're not a saint who's trying. You're just a sinner who can't change. Not really. Just a screw-up who always is screwing up and can never change. God's not that way when he comes to us. He's a good father. When God convicts you of sin, it's because you have a father who loves you and wants to build and deepen your relationship with him, who wants you walking with him all the time, who loves you, who wants you strong and mature. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. It's from the Psalms. This is how God comes to his children. There's fear, there's conviction, there's discipline, but it's love and it's grace. He's there to help. He's not an abusive father who wants to beat you down. That's Satan.
For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So if you're a believer, you're in Christ. In Christ. It has to do with your position. With relationship to God, you are in Christ. In Christ, you are forgiven and loved. You are justified. And the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of Christ, is in you. You're in Christ, justified and counted righteous, and the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, is in you. You partake of the life of Christ because Jesus' Spirit dwells in you. And this is for your transformation. It's for your sanctification. It's for your growth and holiness. God considers you perfect in Christ. Justification. Satan says, well, you're not perfect. And God says, no, but I am perfecting you by my spirit that dwells in you. Sanctification. Satan says, well, it's not working and there's no chance of you really being perfect in this life. And this is coming down the line. We're not there yet, but God says, yes, that's true, but you will be perfect one day. It's glorification. You're not perfect yet, but you are new. God has begun a good work in you. You have a new nature, a nature according to the Spirit as opposed to a nature according to the flesh. And with that nature comes a new mind, a mind that is set on the things of the Spirit. You think differently than you once did. You don't see things the way you did before. And with that new nature comes new desires. Rather than being hostile to God, you want to submit to God. And with the Holy Spirit, you have new power. The Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you, and He'll give you newness of life. He'll raise you up from the dead. He'll give life to your mortal body. Here's the thing, though. We are really, really used to our sinful pattern of living. Our sinful fleshly habits that we established over the course of our lives. The rhythms and the routines of sinful responses to our old ways of living and thinking. He says, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Which means there is some active participation we have in the work of setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. We have new desires, a new nature, a new mind. We have the ability now to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. But that means that we have to do that work. We have to decide to do that work. We have to recognize those places where we have sinful patterns and habits and ways of thinking that are entrenched deeply within us. And we have to identify them, and we have to step outside and counteract them. It could be as simple as a young man saying, I've decided it's not good to sleep with my phone by my nightstand. I will put it in the other room. It can be as simple as a wife or mother saying, instead of reacting in anger when my kids throw a fit and responding to their lack of emotional control with my own lack of emotional control, 
I'm going to stop. I'm going to take 10 seconds and I'm going to pray. It can be as simple as a husband or a father saying, instead of reacting in anger when my, when my wife is angry, I'm going to stop. I'm going to take 10 seconds and I'm going to pray. But Jake, that doesn't sound really spiritual. That sounds like just like habits and patterns and stuff. Well, yeah, that is spiritual. That's you deciding to set your mind according to the Spirit. That's you saying, wait, 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 I got a problem here. I don't want to be in this old pattern anymore. I want to get out of it. I have to step back, reject that, and teach myself a new way of engaging. How about I just put the phone out in the living room because I don't want the temptation. Is that unspiritual? No, that's spiritual. That's spiritual. That's setting your mind on the things of God. Just doing what it takes. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Famous meditation on this verse in a book called The Mortification of Sin by the Puritan John Owen. It's short, tiny, it's dense. I don't recommend it to everybody, but it is on the necessity of putting your sin to death because putting your sin to death is necessary. We are in debt, not to the flesh. That's the way of death. We have to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. And what that means is we have to actively, by the power of God, be seeking to grow and change and transform. We have to be killing our sin or sin will be killing us. You heard that before? It's from that book. We have to kill sin, sin will be killing us. That shows who we belong to. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. No going back. No going back to Egypt. This is new. You're new. This is new. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Okay, here's the thing. Anybody been to an orphanage? You realize that adoption is a wild, wild thing, right? And that it's pretty much largely a Christian thing. This is not, this is not the way the world ever worked before the church. The church made adoption relatively common. Pagans have always hated children, always. Do you know what that meant in Rome for the church at Rome? The Romans just abandoned their children that they didn't want on the hillside to die. Your baby's born deformed, crippled. You just don't want the child. Put the baby on the hillside and let it die. Or sell it into slavery. That's, that's Rome. 
That's the Roman Empire. That's the pagans. They hated kids almost as much as we do in America. We ripped them limb from limb in their mother's wombs. We burned them up chemically. They just threw them out on the hillside to die. So what did the early church do? The early church was full of men and women who had been adopted into God's family. Who had gotten a taste of the fatherhood of God. So what did they do? They would go out onto the hillside and they would gather the babies. And they would adopt them into their families. Why? Because that's what God has done with each and every one of you who are in Christ. That's what he's done. Each and every one of you was an outcast. On your own, no inheritance, slaves. Owed nothing but wrath and condemnation. And God the Father found you lying on the side of the road in your own blood. And he said, this one is mine. He picked you up. He cleaned you off. He put clean clothes on you. He gave you a new name. And he said, all I have, all that's mine is now yours. I will be your dad. You are my child. It's going to be hard for you. It's going to be hard for you. You're going to screw things up. You're going to fall. You're going to fail. You're going to want to go back to slavery. You're going to wonder why you didn't die on the hillside. But I want you to know that I love you and I'm here for you. And you are in my family now. And in my family, there is no condemnation. There is no death. There is no hillside. I will always be here. There's only grace and there's only love. There's discipline. There's suffering. There's pain. There's tough love. I said it wouldn't be easy. But it is a way paved with love. Paved with grace. Because it is paved with the blood of Jesus, your older brother. So welcome home. And that's the love of God the Father for each one of his children. And that's why we adopt. That's why there are orphanages. So then the question is, are you living as an adopted son of God? And I say son, and that's important because sons, all of us, means all of us are heirs to the promise. It doesn't say sons and daughters because daughters implies no inheritance. So all of you daughters in Christ are also sons. It means you get everything, the full benefit of being a firstborn son. All of it, all of God's promises are yours in Christ. If you're in Christ. So come to him. And live like a son of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have loved us before we could do anything. And we pray that you would help us to trust in you and to believe your promises to us and to live as those who are not condemned but are free. 
Help us to, by your spirit, put to death the deeds of the body so that we may live. In Jesus' name, amen.